anyone using LibreOffice 6.1? Haven't installed, but I haven't used it that much. Mm. Have you noticed the the native GTK uh, message dialogs? Yep. And what do you think? Does it does it enhance your experience to have that? Or? Really much. Yeah, it's the kind of stuff that I, I, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of blog posts and there's some people talking about it, but honestly, it's like, how many, how many dialog boxes do you get in LibreOffice, and why is that such a concern? And like, even on this article, there's, there's even, there's people commenting even on the article itself, and it's, I, I'm just, is that a thing? Is that what we're worried about these days in the Linux community? Is the uh, pop-ups of GTK dialogs, the, the things that ask me to save or not save? We're really glad that those use the native GTK theming. Is that a thing that we care about now? I'm just asking. Well, at least enough people did, or at least one person did, to make it happen. Yeah, apparently. uh, I suppose that's always one of those things, right? It's not quite a fallacy, but like always one of those things in open source where you can argue, like, well, is that the best use of time? Does anyone really care? Would this have been voted on for something to actually try, you know, putting energy to fix? But at the end of the day, people are going to fix whatever they do. And if we have nominally even better software at the end that's probably a win yeah i guess that's I, that's a good point was so i guess that is i guess that is what keeps linux kind of on the cutting edge right when we go to enroll when we go to lay out a file system we have the guy that knows more about file systems than anyone under the sun and that's the guy who makes our file system and apple doesn't put a lot of money or stock into file systems because it's not a sexy product that they can put a bullet point before Right, so to a certain degree, that's our—I guess—that's our competitive advantage. I guess. Yeah, it definitely can be, and I agree. Like, I'm not—I I hardly use LibreOffice. Not that it's not great. Just I thankfully, don't have to use Office software that much. Um, but I could see a future, perhaps Chris review, uh, where you know where we're lamenting the state of consistency on the Linux desktop, and yeah. that this little change would maybe prevent a future rant. Right. Yeah, so definitely. Uh, in the case of protecting user data, dialogues like this are super important as well uh, because users aren't typically very good at interacting with dialogues. And so removing any inconsistencies, giving them a clear path, things they can expect, like helps them get through the information. OK, so elaborate on that a little bit. So you mean like are you saying if the if yes is always on the right and all of a sudden once it's on the no, uh, on the on the left, then all of a sudden they inadvertently click? What, what, what exactly do you mean? Well, like in elementary, we have like some rules about dialogues as far as like never ever use yes and no labels because then there's can be like really bad logic conflicts between the messaging in your dialogue and what your action buttons do. So you should have like an affirmative action that describes exactly what it does and it should always be in the same position. And then directly to the left of that should always be cancel, which is your do nothing. So that users always have a safe way to back out of this and go, oh, no, like, I don't know what this dialogue even means. I don't want to do anything. Okay, interesting. So you're saying if 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 I say uh, erase disk, if if that's all I'm asking and I have a yes and a no, yes, I want to erase the disk or yes, I want to leave the disk alone and no, I don't want to touch the disk or no, I, I want to erase. Is, is that what, is, am I picking up what, what you're saying kind of? Right. Depending on the messaging in your dialogue, you could not be – you could unintentionally be unclear to a user about what you're actually asking them to take a decision on. And and then we even go further um, with using style classes that are available in GTK dialogues for where like a destructive action button is going to be styled red. Oh uh, yeah. Right. Okay. That, yeah, that makes sense. So I like that. And so, and you've laid all of this out in some sort of a specification uh, format. So anyone that is working on the elementary project knows, Hey, this is the way we do it. 
Right. And I believe GNOME has the same uh, human interface guidelines set up for how they expect alerts to work as well. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I suppose to a certain degree that's, that is what this whole GTK dialogue thing wraps around, I guess, huh? Is that the fact that GNOME has set out, here are the dialogues and this is the way we want it presented to the users. And then LibreOffice up until now, I guess, is not calling those. And so the user is presented with a different experience. Yeah, and this is a big problem, I think, for cross-platform applications in general because they have to cater to the different platform conventions of all the different platforms they're trying to ship on, and it, it makes it difficult for the end users to have a, a clear and consistent experience. So in your opinion, do you think that we should always let the operating system deal with the window decorations? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, of totally native apps. Oh, okay, cool. So are you not on the Electron boat then? Oh, no. Really? No, not at all. Not okay. for a second. I think okay. Electron's like the worst thing to happen to desktop development. Really? It's like the antithesis of good design on the desktop. Now, if the only way to get more users on Linux was to offer them the software they want, and the only way that those manufacturers are going to bring them the software they want is through a common, you know, um, I guess, application frameworks like Electron, th does that change your perspective at all? I don't know. I think that's kind of like a fallacious assumption because, um, you know, you, we hear from people that, oh, you know, users will only switch if we have the same apps as Windows, but that's not a compelling reason to switch. Like, why would anybody switch if they can just get the exact same stuff they already had? What, what makes... Linux, a, a killer, superior thing than just like an alternative is the things you can do on desktop Linux, the apps you can get, the tools you can get that you can't get on Windows. Mm. So the experience is actually, in your opinion, is better on Linux than it is on Windows because the applications we have are better than they are on Windows or Mac OS. Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, yeah, and it's getting closer there. And in order to switch Windows and Mac OS users, we need to get to the point where our consumer and productivity applications are much better and not just the same as. So what if we attacked what Wendell Wilson calls the Lotus 1-2-3 problem? And the Lotus 1-2-3 problem was back uh, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s, they, Microsoft wanted to get more people on Microsoft Office uh, and using Microsoft Excel. But in order to do that, everyone was, at the moment, using uh, Lotus 1-2-3. And so what they decided to do was, it wasn't just good enough that they could open those files because they had to be able to save them back out and send them back to the original users. So Microsoft Office made a calculated decision to be able to actually not only read, but also write to Lotus 1-2-3 format. And in doing that, they almost overnight switched users from Lotus 1-2-3 over to Excel. So using that model, where Electron, maybe it's not the, maybe, maybe Electron isn't the end-all, be-all goal. Maybe Electron is the transition layer, the necessary compromise that we make long enough to get our users over to our infrastructure. And then we say, if the application is great, go ahead, let's make native development. If the application isn't great, here is the better open source alternative. Yeah, I think to push the Lotus one two three analogy further, like it's a big problem that users' data is caught up in these single companies that control how that data is stored in like these silos, right? Sure. It, it's it's a huge problem for us to switch people because we can't 
we can't really build a client that's compatible with such and such service. I think Spotify is a bad example. I think they do actually have an API. So we could potentially build a mm. Spotify app as long as you have like their pro version or whatever, right? But then you still have to keep up with it and you know, you're responsible for all Yeah, that. and like I don't know if you could build like a Slack client. I don't know if that API is there for you to even be able to do that, right? So there, there's some problems we have like that or like YouTube – um, you know, that has these certain restrictions and things, right, with the way that, that you can't really interact with their API on the same level that Google does. Uh, so it, it's it's really difficult, I think, for us when we live in a world where now things are so siloed that you really can't technically be compatible with these other applications. Right. Users just have this expectation. They're, they're using these proprietary services. They expect that they'll provide everything they need. They'll tie it in. And yeah, the operation operating system integration levels are, in some cases, non-existent. Yeah, so it's kind of a big mess. Yeah. I do think, I think Dan, you make some great points. They're just in like, I sort of see it as like, yeah, Electron, Electron may be able to bridge the gap. It may be able to solve some of those just like, I need this to be able to work. I would like to use Linux. This lets me do it. But that's not a reason that we shouldn't continue pursuing and making desktop development on Linux as good as it can be. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 240 for March 13th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's tracking its usual host as he heads back from scale. My name is Noah. My name is Wes. Hey, Wes. Happy to be hosting with you again. Oh, yeah. We have an exciting show lined up. Uh, all, we're going to talk to you and give you some audio from what happened at scale. Oh. And, of course, we have the latest in Linux news. And we're going to start with a great story about how you can access your desktop remotely, even if you're on Plasma. Before we get to any of that, though, Wes, you know what we have to do. I sure do. We have to welcome our mumbo it's room. Mumbo room. We got to say Hello. Hello, Hello. Hello. Good day to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How y'all doing? Doing good. I'm good. Crazy. That's Very good. That's awesome. So uh, this first story is about screen sharing in Plasma uh, in a Wayland session. And basically uh, what the article says is that Plasma using a Wayland session um, – now has the ability to share your screen or record your screen. However, as you, most of you, everyone in this room is probably aware, in order to do that under Wayland, you have to have some help with the compositor, the thing that like draws all of the pictures. And then you have to deliver all of that information to the client application. So in a perfect world, we would do that in such a way that all desktops talk in the same manner. Which lessens yeah, that the, would make sense. Well, it just lessens the work for the developers, right? And um, luckily, GNOME is on the precipice of this with Pipewire, and basically, Pipewire together with the support from Flatpak means that they have it. They've created this API that applications can use to access screen content on Wayland sessions, or in case they're running inside of a sandbox. And with uh, the various implementation like XDG just xdg desktop portal dash kde or xdg dash desktop dash portal dot gtk they just need to support one api and they can target both of those desktop all desktops really wow yeah so the client needs to create uh between them this portal backend and then the user will get a dialogue on which screen they would like to share 
Now, I did some more research on this, aside from this article. And one of the revolutionary things that people are really, really excited about is, at the moment, OBS screen capture does not work under Wayland. Right. I've been bitten by that myself. Have you? Yeah, absolutely. So, we were, especially we were doing the Gen Two challenge right here on the show. Uh, I was going to I was going to use that, but it did uh, had to. We had to come up with some alternative setups. Okay, well, no more, Wes. No more. It's going to be solved because now, yes. yeah, it's going to allow you to uh, to actually screen scrape and use OBS. Secondly, it is going to support multiple monitors. So that was my next question: Is okay, fine. They have this this pipeware thing going. It's going to talk to all this backend stuff, but is it robust enough? Because I have six monitors in my computer downstairs. And I'm running Wayland, and I run into some issues. So is it going to support? Yes, it supports multi-monitors. So you're not going to have any of those issues. Is anyone in the mumble room using multi-monitor support under Wayland? Is anyone using Wayland and tried to do any any sort of screen capturing or run into problems? Hmm. No, huh? One, two, three, four, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, of, nine Linux users in this room, and nobody's using Wayland. I just... Come on, guys. Well, I don't have a second monitor to go multi-monitor on, so there's that. Okay. Single monitor, though? Yeah, single monitor on a laptop. Okay, cool. Anybody uh, using zero monitors? <laughs> at work, I, mean, I am in several places. <laughs> Strictly yes, in, at work. Well, so, interestingly enough, I have machines that I actually do have zero monitors on. The, in fact, the, 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 the machine that I use for this very program is using zero monitors and I remote into it. But guess what? If that machine was running Wayland, it would it would I would I would actually cost me another hundred and some dollars because I'd actually have to physically plug a monitor in because I wouldn't be able to remote into it. At least and not- the machines I use at work are have have no monitors. You can hook a monitor to monitor to them, but really it's made to be used within a web interface anyway, so that's there's that. Sure. I like this idea of, and I'm interested to get your take on this, Wes. I like this idea of using a common API for them to access the screen content. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that just seems that seems like a big win for everyone. Um, you know, I'm also really impressed that we, I feel like the first time we even talked about Pipewire wasn't that long ago. Right. It, the, looking at the the commit history, it's making great progress, and it's to the point where you know a diverse set of projects are looking at imp- integrating with it and using it to provide these features. Yeah. It seems like that's it's not you know none of this is quite there yet, but a, this is like a huge one of the like can Wayland really even work in practice? Right. Roadblocks that seems like it's going to get knocked down pretty soon. Yeah, I think that. The development of Wayland alone has easily surpassed my expectations of, of how fast I thought it would it would gain adoption, and you know they rolled it out in, um, I guess it would be seventeen ten, and ran into some issues, and so they're going to fall back to XOR by default in eighteen oh four. But uh, having used seventeen ten, it was way more pleasurable than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I really hit a lot less roadblocks than I thought. And so now to see them start to stack some of these newer, cooler things on top is really cool. And when we were at the Ubuntu Sprint in New York, I had a chance to interview one of the gentlemen that works on the Whalen Project. And uh, and, and one of the things that he was saying was how they are repivoting Mir to be that interconnection part where you have a common thing for de- for you know, for developers to target. And then that does all the heavy lifting and talking to Wayland. 
And I think that's a really interesting way to not throw a bunch of work away, right? I think that's a really interesting way for Canonical to take a lot of the work that they're doing and saying, okay, the community doesn't accept this as a whole, so let's pivot on it and let's make this let's make this available. Because when you actually have the technical discussions between Mir and Wayland, Mir was a better choice from a technical perspective because it was less work for people to to speak to it because it was it was end to end. Whereas in Wayland, you have this middle compositor thing that's that's sitting there that you have to like Kwin or mutter that has to sit in the middle in between. So uh, when I start to see things like this and it, and it supports Flatpak, I'd be interested. Does anyone know if this could be done with um, snaps instead of Flatpaks? Nobody knows. Okay. That's, well, a good, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering because it seems like that would be, a, you know, if you're, if you're trying to find these common things for everyone thing to talk to, it seems like in a large way, snaps have much more market penetration than flat packs do. At least that's my perception of it. I see Canonical knocking doors down right and left saying, hey, Skype, would you package for snaps? Hey, this, would you package for snaps? Hey, that was you. And when I take all of those and I try to use them on distros that snaps were never necessarily designed to be used on, like Fedora, like Arch, they work fine. And not to say that flat packs don't work, but I find them to be much more cumbersome. Wes, have you played with both of them? And what, 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 where, do, where do you fall down on this? I don't think I've ever asked. You know, it's, I'm, I'm still trying to watch a little bit. I definitely have used Snaps, uh, you know, quite a bit more. And it seems like so far there's been more momentum on the, the third-party side, the vendored software side on Snaps of, oh, yeah, here's your application. It doesn't really fit into the distro model. Snap it up. We'll ship it out. It'll just, by and large, work. And it seems like the Flatpak project has been a lot more involved in a lot of the underpinnings of some of the, the OS essentials or components or at least the scaffolding right above that. Sure. And and it kind of seems like that's where this fits in. I don't I don't know or I can't comment as much on the story of, you know, will that be used in the same way as Snaps? And I know Snaps have some features that, that could be yeah. similar or could be mapped to these, but that doesn't seem like it's really been as much the focus. Okay. You know, and I think part of it obviously I think a part a large part of it comes into the fa- the fact that Red Hat GNOME team are really heavy into flat packs. And so if they're going to, if, they, if they're, you know, leading the development or working heavily with the folks that are developing Pipewire, then obviously, you know, the natural choice of a quote unquote universal package manager that is now getting segmented into multiple, <laughs> you know, if you're a universal installer it, it is, is flat pack. I think there's an obvious reason that we have landed on that. But but as long I suppose as long as you know both systems can be supported on a large number of operating systems, then it may be good enough to work. It's certainly not ideal, but we rarely get to ideal here in the open source world. Yeah, you know the other thing, Wes, I'd be interested in digging in a little bit is why certain things work and certain things don't. So I'll give you an example. X to go obviously doesn't work, and I think that's pretty obvious. X to go is requires some sort of implementation of X. And <laughs> right. so, if you, yeah, so if you don't have X to go, X to go doesn't work. Um, but there are other things that don't work. I have had trouble with VNC in Wayland Sessions. I have had trouble with TeamViewer in Wayland Sessions. I haven't tried the latest view- version of TeamViewer, but last version of TeamViewer, when I tried it on a Wayland Session, it would just show a black screen. I could see the mouse moving around, but I couldn't actually see anything. Oh, well, that's almost what you want. Almost, very close. I couldn't click on anything either, which was even further <laughs> away. You just get to watch the mouse. Right. But the but the the nice thing is, at least so far, at the moment, every distribution that has Wayland, you can 
pretty easily fall back to X. And then that allows me to fix it, which is how I know that those specific issues were related to Wayland. Um, so though, and, and, and then like we spoke about, OBS has that problem. You know what doesn't have that problem? Simple help. Really? And I don't know exactly what they're doing. I know it's a, I know it's a Java thing, but it works on both Xorg and it works on Wayland. Do you think, do you, I wonder, I wonder if they've updated it for Wayland explicitly? I'm not sure, but I, either they have, and they're one of the most forward thinking companies ever, or the way that they have implemented it, the way that they're grabbing the screen doesn't rely on the, the traditional display model because it has worked, it's worked longer than, than things have been making noise about Wayland shipping by default. I I want to say it was even working before Fedora shipped Wayland by default, but I can't quite remember back that far, so I'm not sure which one came first. All I know is I've never had a box that I couldn't connect to. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably all you care about uh, from your perspective. Yeah, well, for the most part. Anyway, uh, Mumble Room, we all think this is a pretty cool thing. I think it is. Yeah. I think the API thing is, is, is my favorite part of all, because I, I, think, I think the API thing sends a message to everyone that we as a Linux community are working together for once and working towards a common goal. Because if there's one thing I get frustrated with Linux users about, it seems like every time there is a way for us to fragment on something or there's a way for us to take different camps, we do that. And so the fact that we're targeting, targeting this common API and we have XDG Desktop Portal KDE and XDG Desktop Portal GTK, I think that's really cool. Yeah, right. If we can, if we can do this right, and there's been so much promise, we have this new technology. We're finally at a point where it's almost ready to be in our hands, and maybe it works for the like. If all you do is just, you know, you sit on your laptop, you browse the web, you use a terminal. Wayland's pretty much already there, and so now we're like reaching the points of, you know, you have a little more, you know, more complicated use cases. You're trying to do content creation. So as that bubble grows and grows, it's great to see this actually being picked up everywhere. So it's interesting you bring up content creation because. Uh, last week, obviously, we were at uh, scale. Right. And, yeah, and so we're sitting there, and we were. I was doing the Ask Noah show live from the show floor. And the process to actually put us on the air requires me to be simultaneously 2,700 miles apart. I have to first, I have to be in the JB1 studio outside of Seattle, and I need to be able to stop the streaming there. And then I have to magically teleport myself over to Grand Forks and, uh, and start, my, start my streaming there. On top of all that, after I've actually streamed out, then I have to establish a connection to myself from the show floor back to my studio. And so to do that, I was using a uh, remote, a remote uh, soft, so simple help, I was using simple help to connect back to and, and turn these off and on. And one of the things that was absolutely invaluable was the fact that I had my Ting hotspot. And if you go to Ting.com and use the promo code Linux, you too could have a Ting hotspot. And what's great about the Ting Hotspot, it's a dedicated device for using the Internet. Now, why is that important? Because there's, there's people out there and they'll say, well, no, I have my cell phone. I just toggle the cell phone Wi-Fi or toggle the hotspot on. There we go. I have it, right? There were numerous times where I had to get up and I was running to the bathroom or I had to run grab a piece of equipment or I had to run grab a bag. And I couldn't afford to not be with, without my communication device, particularly because that particular dad forgot my badge. And so I was using Chris. I was saying, hey, Chris, you know, can you come let me in? Can you come get me in? Whatever, right? 
So I wanted to have two separate devices. Well, if I had gone to, you know, uh, whatever big box carrier and said, I want two devices, they're going to say, well, it's a $25 plan or to add on. And then you got to pay the uh, device fee. And then you, you, we don't sell you the device. We like rent it to you at, a, at, a, at, a, at some insane cost. And so, you know, it's probably by the time you get done with the thing, it's probably 55 bucks. With Ting, you only pay for what you use. So it's just six bucks a month and you pay for your usage on top of that. What gets better is once you buy the once you buy that particular bucket and I start filling up minutes and I've used 51 minutes, if I have four phones, I'm only paying that $6 per line for those four phones. And if all four phones stay under 100 minutes, we're great. And if we go over 101, that's fine. We can share that next bucket with everyone. But I'm never paying for more than what I use. And that meant that days like scale, yeah, yeah, I did. I used a little bit more data. I needed a little bit more data because I needed to be able to stream. But you know what? Months like this month, where I'm going to be in Grand Forks the majority of the month, I'll barely use any. And next month, when we do Linux Fest Northwest, which is the last weekend in April, so if any of you can make it, you should, you'll see me there with my Ting hotspot, with my Ting phone, and I carry spare Ting cards inside of my briefcase. So if anyone wants to try Ting, I'll even give you a Ting SIM so you don't have to buy the Ting SIM. You can just put it in your phone. Now, no, how can you afford to do that? Because it doesn't cost that much. The Ting SIMs, you can buy them on sale. I think they're like four or five bucks. I activate Ting Sims and give them to people. I say, use it for a month. I don't even care. That's how cheap it is. In fact, I, 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 was, I was redoing my password manager, and I didn't have my Ting account. And I'm like, ah, I'll just wait till the end of the month, and then I'll, then I'll turn it off. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because it's cheap. It's cheap, great service that works really, really well. And we can use it to do broadcast-level recording and production right off of your T-Mobile network or the CDMA uh, Sprint Network. They're, they're MVNOs of both. So head over to Ting.com and use the promo code Linux and uh, get $25 off your first month of service or your first device. And a huge thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. All right, guys. Uh, I want to talk about Ubuntu Mate. Ubuntu Mate 18.04 Beta 1 has, oh, been, has been released. What do you want to say? Oh, boy. I haven't even gotten to the story yet. <laughs> Ubuntu Mate 1804. I'm beta. testing it right now. Okay. Beta 1 has been released. They are preparing for the distribution on April 26th. I'm sorry, it hasn't been released. April 26th. With this beta pre-release, you can see what they're trying out in pre- preparation for the next stable release. Now, they have some... They have the, the website gives a little bit of details on the kind of user that might want to try the beta release, and they give some examples of the kind of people who might not want to try the beta release. But some of the things that stand out right off the bat DPI auto detection and auto scaling. That is huge. And and let me tell you, as a person who had to sit next to another guy that was setting up his laptop on a 4K display that did not have that particular feature, it's real frustrating. Because what happens is you can't read anything. And the windows take up some annoyingly weird proportion amount of the screen. So you get this window that takes up like 15 pixels by 15 pixels and it's like, I have 4,000 pixels for you to choose from and you're, 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 you're cornering yourself to the fact that I can see three of my available 15 options. So the fact that it auto-detects high DPI is great and every display that we are buying here at AltaSpeed for, for uh, in-office use is high DPI. We're not buying 1080p displays anymore. Now I think those are going to stick around for a while in the production world. But as yeah. far as like day-to-day people, I think more and more laptops are going to become high DPI. Certainly more and more desktops are going to be 
uh, going with high DPI. And I'll tell you another little secret, Wes. I didn't tell you about my new toy. I got a new toy. I got a new, really? Yeah, I got a Dell Ultra Wide monitor. I don't remember exactly how big it is, like 32 inches or something. It's absurd. That's awesome. Yeah, and I put it on a stand-up desk and plug my laptop into it, and it's fantastic. But guess what? High DPI. Mm-hmm. You know what my laptop isn't? High DPI. So you know what's really great? When you have a distro that automatically recognizes the difference between a high DPI monitor and a non-high DPI monitor. It's really fantastic. It seems like, it seems like a great win, too, for like new, inexperienced users because you, you, know, you right. start it up, you plug it in. You can't read anything. You have to go try to find maybe where the setting is if you even have a setting for it. So if, if it can just work, it goes so far to getting us to like Apple-level polish. Man, you're not it just... It definitely eliminates the need to use binoculars while using your computer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you guys aren't just whistling Dixie. I had the um, I had the Chromebook Pixel, and that's not even a 4K display. That's just a 2K display. Mm-hmm. And that sucker, when I would install Ubuntu proper, it's like I think the last version I had on it was like 1404, maybe 1604, and it didn't automatically uh, scale. Trying to read the numbers was so miserable that I actually resorted to changing the re- resolution down, then scaling up, then setting my resolution back. Because otherwise, I just couldn't read what I was doing. It was that bad. So it, it, it can be a show-stopping problem for New Year's, especially if you're not expecting it, and all of a sudden things are teeny, teeny, tiny all over the screen. Um, but that's not all that the, uh, the, the next beta of Ubuntu Mate has. It also supports hardware, accelerated, uh, hardware acceleration for compositing. That dramatically improves 3D rendering, particularly in games. If you have the DRI, uh, support for DRI in your hardware and in your drivers, and they have improved global menus. So I think uh, Ubuntu, Wimpy, is he here? Wimpy is not here. But Wimpy uh, and his team continue to do a really fantastic job at making a really fundamentally useful desktop. And I talk to people all the time. A good friend of the program, Chris DeLuca, swears by Ubuntu Mate, puts it on everything. Uh, And he uses it as his daily driver. And I know that Chris has, has toyed around with using it as his daily driver. My wife played with it for a while at using her daily driver. It's such a great operating system if you just want your computer to work. And I think these new features, the fact that they are looking at hardware acceleration, the fact that they are looking at global menus, the fact that they are looking at high DPI, I think all of these things lend itself to being really, really comforting and welcoming to new users. So the person I go to, Wes, I I don't know how closely you follow um, Chris's fiance hadia mm, oh yeah so she owns a like she works so hard that's that's one of the things i really like about her she works really really hard and she has a really deep passion for what you're for what she does so if you happen to be in the seattle pacific northwest area and you're looking for somebody who does acupuncture and, and really she can help you with like a variety of things I, I never thought of myself as a person who would need acupuncture for anything and uh, i don't really like needles but she's got all sorts of other little remedies for things and so i had I, I think i had a stuffy nose or something like that and she gave me this little this stuff in this bottle that i i i don't even leave home without it anymore it's always in my travel bag because it works so well um that's i mean that's neither here nor there but the great thing about her office is if you go to her and 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 you use her services you are supporting a linux running business because all of her machines are running linux now one of them nice. I, now one of them i know is running ubuntu mate the other one is running ubuntu proper and that machine is getting a little long in the tooth and so they are looking at updating it and so chris and i were going back and forth we're like well maybe kde maybe this maybe that and one of the things i think is really worth considering is ubuntu mate 
Because Wimpy has designed this operating system from the ground up to be the kind of operating system that you're that anyone can use, regardless of their experience with Linux. And the fact that he is concentrating on what where the next hardware is going to be, if she walks into Best Buy and buys a very nice computer, the chances of that thing having a 2K monitor or a 4K monitor are high. So the fact that Ubuntu Mate is going to work out of the box, I think, is great. Yeah, and it's it's such a neat combination to see the, you know, you have this combination of a, a somewhat traditional desktop model, but with all this, like, it's not only is it built on good foundations, but it has all this shininess they're able to add on top. So whether you're coming from Unity, you're coming from Windows, it doesn't really matter. You can craft it into a desktop that works for you and still enjoy the benefits of all these features. Yeah, I completely agree, especially with that panel layout, being able to yeah. switch between macOS and Windows or, 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 or uh, traditional Linux. Uh, or Unity, all of those things, you know, it brings it all home. And and it's funny when you go to some of these Ubuntu sprints and you look and you're like, hey, that guy's, how did that guy get macOS to run it? Oh, it's not macOS. <laughs> yeah, that's it's really something fantastic to see. What do you think, Mumble Ruby? You guys are being awfully quiet. Am I am I totally off here? No, I I think you're right on, Noah. I mean, you know, um, you can make it look like whatever you want, and you know. I'm installing it right now on my MacBook, actually, and I love the way the stock looks, actually. I have no complaints at all. Yeah, I think he does a really good job. I think that if you try to go away from green, (laughs) that's been my one. I mean, I Mm. I do admit it looks a little too greenish, but I'm going to change that once I get it set up because – and actually – I'm half tempted to try out the proper the stock NVIDIA driver versus Nouveau and see because last time I did that it broke um, the high DPI support but given this is a little bit more time to get proper and everything I'm actually going to see if that works if not I'll go back to Nouveau but either way uh, you know I'm half tempted to see how much their uh, high DPI has improved and, uh, you know, because I do have dual screens upstairs in my room, and I've got a Thunderbolt to um, display. No, I've got a, I've got a display, uh, and I've got a Thunderbolt to display and a, a Thunderbolt to HDMI sure. and a Thunderbolt to a, and a HDMI connection on the computer. I have tended to see how well um, the dual displays work under that and all yeah. that. And but like I said, I'm going to change the stock theme because I got to tell you that is way too much green on top of one. Yeah, I, I guess I don't. I don't necessarily agree that it's too much green. I think he actually does a fantastic job making it look great right out of the box. I guess my point was when you start to ch- when you change one thing from green, everything is kind of designed around the the uh, around the green back uh, around the green background. But I tell you what, if you have an inclination. Uh, ben, to to give it a shot, I would suggest you head over to ubuntu-mate.org and download uh, the Bionic Beta One because I'm sure they I would... actually already did. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, great. Because I'm sure they would really appreciate feedback for that April 26th uh, launch where they actually uh, where they actually sent it out, and that's going to be a big one for them because it's the next LTS, right? So anyone that that has an inclination to help, especially if you're the kind of person that can spot these kind of, that could spot problems and are willing to fill out bug reports willing to file tickets and then follow up and give the developers the information they need to fix it. I'm sure they would really appreciate it. Oh, I definitely love Ubuntu Mate and how they're doing with the high DPI support and all those different things. Well, I'll definitely let them know about my findings and what I've done with it. So, yeah. Outstanding. 
One of my, I guess. And also, I wanted to tell you that it just booted in, and it looks freaking amazing, my friend. That's good to hear. Yeah, I, I always, th- I always think that, uh, I always think it looks really great, especially with that welcome, that software welcome boutique. I've even used that on yes, other machines that aren't about to Definitely, and I think that definitely helps newbie users, unlike a pro user like me. But it definitely helps a new user to Linux or whatever to have that. Yeah, absolutely. I still, I, I guess where I always see Ubuntu Mate fitting in the best for me is uh, like where really nothing else works as well as Ubuntu Mate inside of the cloud. So if you have, Wes, do you have a cloud workstation yet? You know, I don't. I've gotten Chris on this bus. He has, he turned one of his workstations, one of his really powerful ones into his cloud workstation. And in fact, he was, uh, he was extra going into it remotely from while we were on the road over a chain connection i might add uh, but awesome. yeah, yeah it but that's where i think uh, uh, ubuntu mate really shines is and stuff like that because it is so low resource because it works so well with older hardware it means you can really drag out the life in some of your older systems so we have a machine that sits out um right by our back door as our technicians come in and leave and they check in and out and check tickets and whatnot that's running on a on a p4 on a Pentium 4. Really? Yeah, Lenovo on a P4. Ooh. I'll send anyone a picture that doesn't believe me. And uh, you put an SSD in that sucker, and guess what? For for logging into OS ticket and, and closing out a ticket or opening one, that works great. There is no reason, other than maybe some power consumption, why we would ever change that out. Right. And I have a Raspberry Pi here that runs the the uh, studio clock and the on-air lights and all of that. And uh, that's running Ubuntu Mate as well. I really like it. You know, overall, the one place that I still will take Ubuntu Mate over every other desktop every single time is on cloud workstations. When I need a desktop environment that has to run in the cloud and I have to connect to it remotely over X2Go or, or whatever it is, I use Ubuntu Mate. And there's no place I'd rather store my cloud infrastructure than on DigitalOcean. And if you go to DigitalOcean and use the code DOUnplug, they're going to give you $10 credit, which you can use to get one $10 rig, or you can do what I do and get two $5 rigs for free for one month. Now that'll give you a chance to try it. Or I suppose you could even use the $10 credit and get one $5 rig and run it for two months. And the $5 rigs are enough to run a cloud-based workstation. So visit digitalocean.com and use the code DO unplugged and get $10 credit towards your first Linux server. Or if you're like me, use two of the $5 servers and you can actually drag that promo code out. You can actually oh, get yeah. more bang for your buck. And there's and a number of HA droplets up in the cloud and they have a ton of nice features like monitoring stuff to make that, you know, even better. They do. And you know what the other thing they have, Wes, that I really like is their API. The ability to tie those servers and the control of those servers into a number of other things. Now, we talk a lot on this show, uh, you and Chris do, and on, on the rest of the network, talk a lot about being able to tie that into the IRC. What we don't talk a lot about is the mobile apps. Right. And again, this is where DigitalOcean sets itself apart from the competition. If you take for if you take, for example, Amazon or uh, any any of the any of the competitors. Right. There is there is a there is an advantage, an inherent advantage of being able to pull my phone out and restart my server right from my phone. And there's an inherent advantage of being able to deploy and destroy those servers right from my phone. And if you listen to the Ask Noah show and you check out an interview that is coming up later, actually later today, uh, with Yubico, you can, uh, we, we can show you how you can actually tie this hardware-based device into your DigitalOcean account. So that, that you, is so exciting. So that when you, 
install a new server, Wes, you never have to worry about getting these passwords emailed to you. You never have to worry about uploading your key. All of that stuff happens automatically. And you can do that and you can try it for free. If you're, if you're like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's for me, try it. Do you unplug? Use that code, digitalocean.com. And huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. All right. So one of the things that ha- seems to be getting a lot of discussion this week is the Ubuntu 18.04 GTK theme. Now, Ubuntu has looked roughly the same since, uh, well, for years, I think, since probably right around 12.04. And they've had this traditional orange theme that when you sit down to this Ubuntu box, you know it's an Ubuntu box over a Windows box or Windows box, right? And I've always kind of said, like, if it looks blue, it might be Windows. If it looks orange, it might be Ubuntu. And if it looks ugly, it's probably a Mac. You see, you know, in a window in some building somewhere, you're like, that that's probably Ubuntu. Right. So uh, this is from OMG Ubuntu. And basically, the article says, as many of you know, the community theme as it's currently known, is shaping up to do something pretty special. A canny crop of community creators have carefully adapted the ditch designs of the Unity 8 desktop into an attractive, real and pretty reliable working theme. But alas, their work will not be part of the 1804 LTS due to release on April 26th, 2018. Now, the article goes on to say that they believe that this is a sad decision that it means that the Ambience GTK theme will continue to live on until 2023. Even though that theme was... Oh, here it is. So that that theme was first introduced in 2010. Now, I guess my question, my first question to you, uh, Wes, is do you care? I mean, uh, I can see how it's disappointing, but I also have a strong appreciation for... You know the amount, limiting the amount of changes, or really getting that polished layer on an LTS. And while this this new theme, you know, might make sense, it I don't know if it's it makes sense uh, to to do you go through all those cycles when it can be something that will be able to be bolted on later for interested users. And you know, in the future, if it works out really well, then it will show up in later LTSs. Oh yeah, no, that makes sense. Mumble Room, what do you think? Do you guys, uh, that's my first question: Is does anyone care? Does anyone care what theme default theme Ubuntu ships with? Um, Honestly, I care about stability. Okay, what about stability? Well, lots of the, I mean, um, lots of the time I want I just want to chuck the OS up on running on some um, clients' machines, and I just want it to work. Especially if they are not Linux savvy. If something slightly weird goes wrong, I don't want a headache of well, thing doesn't work again. Okay, so, so for if it works, it's better. So for you, it's not an aesthetic thing; it's a functional thing. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I would like to see a new theme, and it does. The new one does look really nice, but um, at the end of the day, less calls for me is better. So there's functionality there's, went out. There's a reason I'm. Uh, there's a reason I'm pushing you on that, and the reason is I agree with you implicitly. I agree with you that the priority should be in the user experience, not necessarily in what we subjectively think is pretty. And we have to remember, us Linux users are going to have a predisposition to think that. Uh, the current Unity theme isn't pretty because we've seen it for so long, right? And so we're probably a little bit sick of it. But I would challenge you because the internet, there's, I, I went to, I think I was in three or four different Telegram groups and this particular article came up and people are saying, why aren't we, why aren't we taking the, the reboot of Linux and the, as an opportunity to say this new GTK theme could be really great. We could come up with a new GTK theme that really shines, that really shows what GNOME is capable of you know, maybe something that's a really nice dark theme, something like that, right? 
And I agree with all of that. I think that eventually we should get there. However, I want to play a piece of audio that we captured while we were at uh, scale. If I turn my uh, volume slider up. (laughs) Are you getting a lot of questions? Are you getting a lot of concern? Are you getting a lot of excitement for Canonical's decision to switch to the GNOME desktop? People are looking saying, oh, that doesn't look so different at all. And said, no, we've worked really hard to make. We haven't implemented Unity on top of GNOME Shell. We want it to be a GNOME Shell experience. But we want to provide an easy transition. So when people, uh, when someone has a 1604 and they do their upgrade in July, um, they're not, it's not surprise new interface. Okay, so what he's saying there is that they have had concerns from users that they're going to have the rug pulled out from under them. And he's saying that user after user is walking up to this demo machine with GNOME installed, and they're looking at, and they're looking at GNOME with the current Ubuntu theme that people are used to and saying, yeah, actually, you know what? That really doesn't look too bad. That actually looks a lot to what I'm used to. I mean, I can see a couple little changes here and there, but roughly things are how I would expect them to be. What do you think, Wes? Is that is that a logical reason? Yeah, I mean, I think there is... I think there end up being kind of disparate communities too, you know, and, and here we talk a lot about news and exciting stuff of what's coming up, so it's really easy to get super excited and want all that latest shiny stuff. And, of course... We want a bunch of awesome. They've done a bunch of great work here. We want it to look really good and appetizing to users. We want to, you know, try to bring to our favorite platform. But I do think there is a lot to be said about, you know, limiting that change. And, you know, there's even some some consternation here about, well, couldn't you have shipped this theme, you know, just as, a, as an extra or somewhere, you know, somewhere as an option in the menu? And yeah, sure. But it, even that feels like there's a certain amount of blessing, official blessing from from the distribution maker. And if you really can't stand by it, versus you know having that stability for for new for for users new or old knowing that it that it just works it's what you've been trained on and that from there once we've get this we're you know it's a big transition going going to gnome uh it's a big transition building these new building this new infrastructure so if we can do that in a way where change happens but at a pace that is enough enough to keep it going but not enough to to drive people away like maybe that first unity transition i think that's a good thing I completely agree. I completely agree with basically everything you just said. And that is kind of where I think Nathan was going. That is where I think the Ubuntu design team was going. And that's what I would suggest if somebody were to ask me for my opinion. Let's make GNOME all it can be. Let's make GNOME shine. Let's show off all of the shiny bells. Let's just do all of that after we have made this absolute hurdle of a transition where we are changing the desktop Experience Because I think as geeky Linux users, we underestimate this. And I have some unique insight because my company deals directly with this very issue where we're right. where we're taking desktop Linux and putting it in front of users who they don't care what the desktop infrastructure – they don't care what the desktop environment is. They don't care what the operating system is. They just want to get to work. And I think you start to lose perspective. For us, we don't care because we've tried KDE, we've tried GNOME, we've tried Unity. It doesn't matter right. to us, right? We, just, know how, we know how to switch if we need to. Not a big deal. I ha- can't count the number of times, Wes, that I have heard a, a Linux user say to me, I don't really care what desktop's on top. What I really care about is wh- what's underneath. Now, that can either be I want the bleeding edge of Arch or that can be I want the stable security mountain of the Ubuntu LTS. But I don't care what desktop is on top of it so much as I care is what's underneath. And... I will tell you, as a person who makes this, who puts food on the table by catering to users, 
the vast majority of computer users that aren't geeks look at the their computer in working environment the exact opposite way. They couldn't care less if Arch is underneath or Ubuntu's underneath or Fedora's underneath. What they care about is that the close button is in the same part of the screen every single time. What they care about is that the file menu is easily findable. What they care about is that the dock that was over on the left, and that's how they launched their applications for the last five years, that dock is still there. What they care about is when the computer boots up, that it has roughly the same look, so they feel like they are at the same computer. That's what the average Linux user is is thinking. And at least the average Linux user that was not necessarily put there by choice, because most of us choose our desktop, right? Now... I'm sorry, Mimic, you had a comment about uh, people using the, just changing the wallpaper? Yeah, it it is interesting. I switched a lot of people to Linux and everything, but what they do is they change their wallpaper and uh, paper and nothing else after years because they like to use their desktop. As you said before, as as always, as they used it before, they don't want to change. The only thing they change is the wallpaper. The rest has to stay as it was before. And so they that's can a good work. Point. They can work like that. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. I really agree. And I'm sorry, Wes. I, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh no, I think I, I I think you covered it. Yeah. Well, I was just going to exactly. say, no, that. Uh, sorry, I meant to say that. Uh, you know, um, I have to say the Ubuntu stock theme is fine, but it, in my experience, it doesn't really play that well with uh, with uh, what should we call it um, other apps and i've noticed this very well um a lot and uh i think that maybe if they ship something like new mix or something like that then uh, like a different theme then you know maybe some normal users like non-average linux users would probably be happy that's just my opinion but yeah, I can. I, I guess I can kind of see that. I, I just, I just keep coming back to as I. It, it seems to be. I, I don't see a lot of dissenting opinion on the internet. I'm not seeing a lot of people saying, "Oh, this isn't really a. This isn't really a bad thing. Uh, this is fine." And I'm not seeing a lot of people saying it's a theme. I don't really care if I didn't like it. I'd change it. I am seeing a lot of disappointment. I guess that's the that's the word I, I see keep coming up. But we're disappointed. We're disappointed that. We're disappointed about this theme. We're disappointed in Canonical's decision. We're disappointed that they're not making GNOME look like GNOME. They're trying to make it look like Unity. And uh, you heard it in the clip. Nathan said himself, we are not trying to reinvent Unity on top of GNOME. We want GNOME to be GNOME. We just want people that have been using Unity for the last 10 years to not feel totally lost on their computer when they click an update button and everything moves. Literally, the entire interface that the user talks to is going to get ripped out from under them and replaced with a different one. We need to make that transition as smooth as possible. So I think Canonical is absolutely on point. I think it's a great way to go. And um, it's also, it seems to me, it also speaks a little bit to like, it's, you know, Canonical's doing a lot, especially if you're going to compare it with something like, you know, with, with Mac OS X. Um, 1804 is not just you know there there is this this workstation desktop environment, but they're you know they're working on the back end and a lot of the core that still gets on the server as well and and their their cloud distributions. There's a lot going on here. So if you know if they can't commit, if there's not enough resources to polish this theme, especially with the, you know it's it's really like a community thing mm-hmm. that ties into it too. And we're really you know we want it to shine on every platform that we're going to do it on. Sometimes that means things just take a little longer. Yeah, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, uh, you know, and I, I'd, I'd rather concentrate on what we're doing right and, instead of what they're yeah. doing wrong kind of a thing. However, I will say this, since you bring up macOS, you know, Apple users are perfectly okay 
with their desktop staying basically the same for 45 years. I mean, <laughs> Apple has not really significantly changed the desktop it layout. I mean, I've still got the little Apple. I still have the file menu up top. I still have the, you know, I mean, little things have changed. There's less brushed metal now, but okay. Yeah, right, right. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I, I just, I feel like there is something to be said about uh, familiarity and stability. And you, you see this in all sorts of places, right? Like one of the reasons that I always stay at a particular hotel brand is because I know where the beds are. I'm used to the paintings on the wall. I know where the bathrooms are. Everything's kind of yeah. laid out in the same way. And anybody that travels a lot for a living, and I became particularly aware of this because we were, uh, I was just in, in LA. And one of the things I enjoyed was we went to Target and I kind of had a rough idea of the layout of the store. We were able to find the things except for a towel that we needed because they're roughly laid out the same way that they're laid out in Grand Forks or Seattle or New York. And I think that kind of familiarity is sometimes taken for granted. So for those, all of those reasons and everything we just discussed, that's, I think Canonical is making a great decision. Dan brought up a pretty good uh, point in discord and I'll, I guess we could let him chime in on that if he's there. Sure. Hey Dan. Yeah, I think um, something a lot of people don't realize is that, like, back in the old days when we had, like, GTK 2, we had themes. And the thing was that themes were super limited. You could change some colors. You could change a little bit of styles. You could change, like, some very surface things, but it was super constrained. And nowadays, we don't really have themes anymore. We have style sheets. And the difference is huge. And style sheets are incredibly powerful, and they can also be incredibly dangerous. If you went to any random website and you copied their CSS style sheet and tried to apply it to a different website, it just wouldn't work. You would think that was insane. Like, you would never expect that to be a thing. But for some reason, like, Linux users still think that we have themes and it's easy, you know, but, but style sheets are really hard to get right. Have and you, it, it's absolutely a good thing that they said, hey, we need to test this. We need to look for corner cases. We don't know if, if this is actually going to physically work. It could really break things. So to that point, have you looked at some of the CSS style sheets in GNOME? Uh, yeah, we reference uh, AdWayda all the time just to see what they're doing because in a lot of cases, um, we kind of have to chase um, GTK when there's API changes. Okay. If you were to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being everything is perfectly documented all the way through and I never have any questions of how what this style sheet does or what this thing references or if I change this color, this is what's going to happen. And one is I basically change it, save, reload the desktop and see what it looks like. How would you rate the uh, documentation? Somewhere between one and I really use Inspector a lot. And uh, and so anyone that has has dug <laughs> anyone I'm serious I, I'm serious you, anyone can check this I, I've heard this from n- a number of developers that the style sheets inside of GNOME are horrendously documented and so one of the issues that we are going to run into if we start willy nilly changing all of this stuff uh, what are we down to what, the date is the uh, let's see here we are less than okay we have a little over a month we have like a month and a week before the LTS ships yeah. We have a month and a week before the LTS ships, an LTS that follows a somewhat less than perfect LTS that came out last time, right? We had wireless issues. We had a, we had a couple issues that came out. But this is the opportunity for Canonical to get the desktop right. And they have restructured the company. They're going back to this old desktop. They have pared down to just the A players. 
this is an opportunity for Canonical to shine. And the worst possible thing they could do at the 11th hour is go in and say, well, we don't really know what these hex codes do, so we change them and we reload. And then hopefully we run into all of the places that it didn't change so that we can go and fix those too. That is a ridiculous model, I think. It, yeah, it's like someone asking you to write the entirety of Bootstrap in a couple months. Right. Yeah, and, right. And re- exactly. Yeah, and it's really, it's a month and a week. So let's get through the transition. Let's go with the thing that works, the thing that we know. And then from there, let's move on to making it a totally different theme. That's, that's kind of where I want to leave it. If you want to learn more about how to change themes, because there's going to be somebody out there and they're going to say, how does, how did, how did, how does Noah learn that stuff? Because I'm an IT admin, right? I don't have time to be, I don't develop <laughs> desktop. That's not what I do. That's not what you do, Wes. Neither, right. Neither one of us develop desktops for a living. But what I do do, what I do is I go to linuxacademy.com slash unplug. That's what I do. And when I do that, a promo code is applied and I am able to get a discount on my Linux education. Now, this is, you have to understand something. You have to understand that I have, I approach Linux education from the old school model. I have O'Reilly books. I don't use them anymore other than to set them up behind my desk so that clients are impressed. They're like, oh, you have O'Reilly books. You are well-educated. Well, that's essential, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's some people that still judge me on that. But I, and I, I was the guy that spent five dollars $6,000 in tuition to go to a Red Hat training course. And then plus hotel expense, plus I'm away from work, plus I'm paying for you know eating out every night, which is really – a lot of people don't understand. That is probably one of the most expensive things about traveling. Not anymore. Now I go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. My, re- my Red Hats, I let my Red Hat certification expire. I'm not proud of that because I, I liked being Red Hat. But the truth is I am a small business owner and I don't have to certify myself for myself to understand that myself understands what to do. I just need to know the technology. And with Linux Academy, I'm able to do that. I was able to learn everything I needed to know to get my clients up to speed on RHEL 7. And again, this is coming from somebody who paid for the course in RHEL 6, and I don't feel like I got anything more out of the actual Red Hat course for the thousands and thousands of dollars I spent than the, discount, than the discounted course that I got from linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. And here's why. The people that work at Linux Academy, and I met them at scale, these are true dedicated Linux users. These are people that have passion for Linux, passion about the projects that they're presenting on. And one of the fantastic things One of the fantastic benefits that you get when you're working with a true dedicated professional that understands and cares and has a passion about what they're doing is they are excited to answer your questions. They are excited to watch that light bulb go off when you learn something. And that two-way communication, that two-way learning, that ability to say, yes, I get this and no, I don't get that, that's what leads ultimately to success. Right before I got on the air, I was having a discussion with another gentleman I met at scale, and he was asking me, no, I... I want, I'm working at this particular job, no technical relation whatsoever. I don't have any sort of technical skills that I'm using at this job, but I like Linux and I want to move into a Linux job. How do I do that? My first answer was Linux Academy, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and start your new career. They're going to take care of all the hard stuff, spinning up the labs, spinning up the AWS instances, spinning up the servers. Setting up the, the, you know, the, you know, the, the minutia on top of it, you need, again, go back to a lamb stack. You need to set up a lamb stack. They're going to set all of that up for you. And even if you don't want, even if you don't want to change career, maybe you're very happy. Maybe you're like me and you just want to learn something about something. 
because knowledge is the one thing nobody can take away from you. So go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and make sure to check out their Linux courses and find your passion and get started today. And a huge thanks to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. So this, I, I have two things that I want to get to. I, this one, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I just want to talk, talk about it briefly. Are any of you familiar with Simon from the KDE Project? Yes. Sorry, no. Okay, whoever said yes, tell, tell me. Yeah. So, okay, talk to me about Simon. So, are you referring to Simon Quigley? No. <laughs> okay, no, okay. Then, right. I, then I don't okay, have right. any idea what you're this talking about. This is almost as cool as Simon Quigley. It's not quite as cool as Simon Quigley, but it's very close. Simon is an open source speech recognition program that replaces your mouse and keyboard. And the system is designed to work with any language or dialect. Now, here's why I it was so excited when I first saw this. I get people all the time that write into the Ask Noah show and they'll say, I have a hearing impairment. I have a visual impairment. I have a speech impairment. I know for a fact I have one listener that has all three. And accessibility on Linux is usually not is, – is something that I would have not thought a lot of developers had a lot of time for. I would have thought we had bigger fish to fry, bigger fires to put out. But it turns out there's some really passionate people that are working on these accessibility options. And what this does is it legitimately enables us to switch people to Linux. So um, I'm over at uh, kde.org and you can it's uh, simon.kde.org and you can you can click on for a short demo. I don't have any way to show that to you, but the uh, the screenshots look absolutely fantastic. And I have reached out to uh, one of the viewers of our shows, a listener of our shows that I know for a fact uh, would really benefit from this. And I'm hoping that he can get back to us with a more in-depth review from somebody who actually relies on tools like this to use his computer, because I would feel a little weird trying to give you my opinion about an accessibility tool that I don't really have a use for. I don't really have a need for it. Right. And I wouldn't really notice if it was, I mean, if he can't, if they, these tools don't work for him, he can't use his computer. If they don't work for me. I just go, well, that didn't quite get it, but I just typed it anyway, you know? So simon.kde.org. I check that out and see what you think. And um, yeah, I'm not ringing on Simon Quigley. He's a great guy, but uh, as far as I know, <laughs> as far as I know, having a Simon Quigley in your computer will not, uh, will not aid you. In your, it just doesn't scale the same way. He might be able to type some things for you for just you, but he can't help everyone. Yeah, yeah he's not replicatable. That's what it exactly. is. You can't rsync him. It does seem really important for us to have this sort of technology, though, especially if we want to be, you know, the open source operating system for the masses. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about that with things like LibreFS and others, but if we can't reach, you know, all kinds of people, it's just not as good. It goes back to what we were talking about in the pre-show, really. The we have to have not only we can't just have the same apps that exist on Windows and Mac OS. We have to have better apps. We have to have more accessibility. We need to be able to say to the person who's struggling with accessibility features, this is why you should use Linux, because it's so more flexible. It's so much more accommodating of your disability. Exactly. That's yeah, that's great. So we'll, we'll I, go ahead. I actually met the lead developer once in Berlin at the desktop summit years ago. Oh, no uh, kidding. From Austria. It's a project from an Austrian university. The problem is it's it, at the time it was very difficult to install because you have a lot of underlying technologies, open source technologies, so you, you have a lot of dependencies and everything. So I sure. guess by now it's it, the installation process is better, but at the time it was very difficult. 
Yeah, it looks like it's pretty straightforward. I haven't again. I haven't played with it myself mo- mostly because I don't think I could do this justice as a review. Um, but that's interesting that you spoke to the developer. So does he have a passion for helping people with disabilities, or does he have a passion for making Linux more accessible? I would assume. Well, it started as uh, as a university project for him, and then they they had a group around with a professor that was interested in that kind of technologies, and so they developed, they they started, and they yeah, they had they also successful. It seems excellent. That is so encouraging to hear, and I'm really happy that there are people out there that are working on projects like that, and I think that it really goes to speak to the. Linux community as a whole and how we come together and and work together. I think that's a I think that's a really cool message. So we'll keep an eye on that. And again, if the gentleman is willing to share his experience, we'll have him uh, participate in Linux Unplugged. Um, otherwise, uh, we'll play with it a little bit and, and and let you know. So it's not you know I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but just take a look at it and and see what you think and be thankful that there are people that are working on things, even if they don't affect a large uh, proportionally, anyway speaking, a large number of users. Wes, you sent me one of the coolest articles I've read today, and this comes to us from Hackaday, and it is about ThinkPad culture. Now, let me exp- – I, I have to go in a little bit to ThinkPad culture before we can talk about this article. Yes, yeah, so there's some background and context. A little here. bit of background. So ThinkPad, back in the day – back when it was owned by IBM, was largely regarded as the best business laptop out there. And then they sold to Lenovo – and most would argue that the quality of the laptop didn't go down, but the quality of customer service would go down. Um, I worked with a gentleman who literally had a semi-truck come pick up a low, a, a entire office load of ThinkPads. This is back when they were owned by IBM because they were having some small, minute little issue. And that's just not how IBM operated back in the day. They wanted to make sure that you had a class A computer you were paying for and they were going to make sure you got it. My first computer was a ThinkPad and I've I've used them you know, really ever since. Um, but basically a couple of years ago, they retooled the ThinkPad and they made a number of changes. Prior to the changes, the ThinkPad had, everything was built around functionality. So the keyboard was built around somebody who bangs on it, you know, for 15, 16 hours a day. All of the function buttons that you would need, when I say function buttons, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, insert, home, delete, all of those things were laid out in a way that basically resembled a, regular desktop keyboard and around three four years ago maybe five lenovo decided that they needed to imitate apple and so they went away from the functional great keyboard that worked perfectly and went to this chiclet style keyboard and they took away they remapped the home insert and end keys so that end and insert is a single key that you have to use function a lot, which is frustrating because you know what I uh, use. A, I, you know what I use a lot. I use end to get to the end of something. You know what right, I almost, yeah, exactly. You know what the key I've never once used on a keyboard for anything intentionally. Insert. I've never. I've never wanted to insert. No, any, no one. No one. Wants no one that. uses that. It's like scroll lock back in the day. Uh, but yet they have. They have. That's that's the kind of idiotic things they've done. There used to be a way I could seek tracks by hitting function and the arrow keys. They've taken all of that away. And because of that, ThinkPad users were understandably very upset because they made these changes. They, they, there's no improvement. They, they, the laptops haven't gotten smaller. There's not any more space. There's absolutely no reason that we couldn't have left the old keyboard. And in response to that, Lenovo created a retro ThinkPad that went back to the old keyboard, that went back to the old uh, you know, layout, basically. Everything was kind of the same as it was in the, in the quote-unquote good old days, except it had newer specs. But they weren't new enough. They weren't 
fast enough. They didn't put enough into it, and consequently, a lot of people didn't buy the retro ThinkPad. So this article from Hackaday talks about the ThinkPad culture that is literally taking these older ThinkPads that are designed basically perfectly, and they are replacing the motherboards, the processors, um, and expanding these laptops and making them into laptops that can be used in 2018. So tell me about this, Wes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it it seems like they've got a lot of... They have some of the modernization stuff right. Um, the biggest one for me is just there's there's like way more USB three, yeah, uh, and three point one and Thunderbolt three. Yep, and and it seems like they're embracing that in a first class way. Right. So they added they added the the the, the USB three. They added Thunderbolt. They updated the RAM uh, to DDR four. Now, if you're interested in doing this, the motherboard that they or the model that they recommend that makes it easy to swap these motherboards out, I believe, is the X sixty X sixty one. X62, X200, X201, X210, and T60. Um, now, if you're not familiar with Lenovo's lineup um, product lineup, the X series is kind of the ultra portable and light. The T series is kind of the hybrid in between uh, portable desktop and super, you know, super light laptop. And um, I th- the P series is the uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a mobile workstation, I guess. And um, so they, they have a couple different options for you to choose from. And it's interesting that they have they have been able to get these newer motherboards into these older chassis. And with the heat sinks and, and, and getting them to fit and getting the ports to stick out without looking terrible. Because if you look at some of these pictures on the Hackaday site, and we'll have it linked in the show notes for you, uh, this laptop looks really good. This looks like it was actually produced at Lenovo, and yet it is produced by a community of hackers, a community of hardware tinkerers, right? Yeah, it, it, really, it, it really does. And I think there's a strong contingent of Linux enthusiasts out there, or even just ThinkPad enthusiasts who have that love of the classic ThinkPad shape. But we're really getting, you know, for a long time we've talked about, especially if you're, you know, fans of of not using proprietary firmware or other things, you, you're probably already checking out some older ThinkPad models for that reason. But that hardware has really been showing its age, especially if you do stuff that isn't just, you know, a terminal and a web browser. But you want you want more high DPI stuff, you want modern USB, you want PCI Express, all those good things that, you know, a lot of people these days depend on, especially if you're trying to give presentations, you're trying to create media. Having that in this little, being able to have that in a classic package, it seems like maybe the best of both worlds. Is that possible? 100%. No, you're absolutely right. Mumble Room, is anyone else in here using the, is using a ThinkPad? Oh, I wish. Mimic, I have what? A Mimic, you have a two thirty. Okay, so the yeah, two thirty. I, I love that guy. So the two thirty, if I'm not mistaken, is the last ThinkPad that was that was produced from the X series before they switched to the new layout. Is that correct? Nope. And it was the two twenty was the last. The two thirty is the first that has the new layout. Okay. All right. So you have the. But chicken. I loved uh, the keyboard. Is not bad. And as I didn't know the layout before, for me it was no problem. Did you uh well yeah that does explain a lot. So you never use the old ThinkPad layout? Nope, nope. Okay. I have uh, I bought one X220 for my sister afterwards and she's loving it. 
but I never used the the, the page down, page up keys uh, that you have on the old IBM line, layout. Yeah, and you know, it's not so much that I I use the the you know the page up the page down. It's really not even one particular key that I used a lot. I guess what bothered me was we didn't gain, we didn't have any meaningful gains by getting rid of that stuff. <laughs> Well, as I said, as I didn't use the ThinkPad yeah, yeah, before, sure. I cannot really see the yeah. difference. Yeah, sure. But as far, your 230, though, you're happy with it? It's worked very well? I assume you have Linux oh, on it? This is a solid horse. I use <laughs> it every day. And you have Linux on it? Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I have a dual boot. and I, You have uh, these uh, slots. You have an M2 slot in it, so you can add a, a, a different uh, an SSD in it and still have a, a normal slot for another hard disk. Mm-hmm. So you can do whatever you want. And if you don't want it, you take out the M2 SSD and you make a SIM card in it and you can use it even with GSM. Yeah, I had that on my X250, I want to say. Or X260, whatever the one I had before this. Um, now I have the X270, and I'm actually in the process of perhaps upgrading to the X1 Carbon. Um, and Lenovo has made some design decisions that I'm a little frustrated with. You can hear more about that in uh, in user error and ask Noah. But uh, suffice to say, this is a really neat article, and I'm glad to see that there is a community popping up around ThinkPads. If you go to any of the grassroots Linux conferences, like Self, um, you'll see a lot of ThinkPads. You'll see a lot of ThinkPads. In fact, at Self, for example, they actually require you to present on ThinkPads. And so they're, if for a long time, ThinkPads have kind of been known as the, the, I guess, the computer that Linux enthusiasts kind of rally around. And that is where Red Hat uh, has chosen to purchase all of their computers. And, and now Google, I understand, is actually purchasing X1 Carbons for, for their employees oh. and, and putting, yeah, and putting, uh, and putting Linux on them. So it's a really good choice. And that's not to demean Dell. Of course, Dell makes really excellent computers. If you want the XPS, it's a fantastic developer's machine. In fact, I think that's going to be my wife's next computer. Um, my dad purchased one. He's been very happy with it. That's not to demean System76. They make great machines too. Um, it's just that Lenovo just, ha- because of because of my roots, I guess, uh, Lenovo has a special place in my heart. So to see a kind of community pop up around it, I think that's really cool. And the fact that we are – I have a passion for older hardware too. So the ability the, – the thought of being able to use an X, uh, a really old T60, that appeals to me. It does look like maybe there's a few complications here. Some some people who have reviewed them have not had the best battery life in the world and some issues with firmware updates and, and that sort of thing. But for what you're getting, it seems like a great deal. Yeah, in fact, I would argue, uh, I, I think I still have a T60 around here. We should maybe that'll be a project for Linux Fest. Wouldn't that be cool that if be we a lot of, yeah. if we rehabbed a T60? And then and then Ooh, maybe, I'd love to see that. Would you? Hell yes, Noah. I gotta tell you, I mean, oh my god, I loved my T60 when I had it, but unfortunately, it died on me, and I'm like, oh my god. So, you know, I've been craving to get my ass another ThinkPad. I just I just can't, you know, afford one right now cuz I'm a broke college guy. Yeah, I hear and I'm you. I'm just like, "Oh, you got to you got to be kidding me." Yeah. So, you know, I would love to see this thing in action at some point. And actually, when I finish my classes, I'm thinking of coming up to Linux Fest Northwest if my dad permits, and I might bring him along with me. And, you know, I got to yeah, tell you, he he IBM, the company he works for, is big supporters of Linux. And I was thinking of, you know, 
bringing him and I up there and checking this thing out. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, he actually uses a ThinkPad T420, uh, which is unfortunately still running Win 7. But, you know, I'm actually thinking of bringing my Mac, which is running Ubuntu Mate on it, and having that with me, actually. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I have. i tell you what I'm planning on doing. I'm going to pick up my X1 Carbon. I'm going to get Linux loaded on that. Then I'm going to talk Chris into using my old uh, X270. And then... We're going to rebuild, a, 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 maybe we'll build a, a T60. And, and Wes, are you up for doing that with me? Heck yes. Well, that'd be great. So that maybe that's what you can look forward to. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, but anyway, thanks so much, Mumble Room, for being here. We really appreciate having you. Oh, Wes, yeah. it's always fun to host with you. Heck yes. Absolutely. If you want to check out more of this great content, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Follow Jupiter Broadcasting on Twitter at JBSignal. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash JBSignal. Chris on Twitter at Chris LES, at Wes Payne for you, Wes. I'm at Colonel Linux. Anything else, Wes? Uh, go check out the TechSnap program. We should have some exciting new episodes coming real soon. And, of course, stay tuned for Ask Noah. And we'll see you next Tuesday. I promise you, wherever Chris is, whether he's in his RV, wherever he is, he's sitting there and he's like, Noah just made, he's like multiple times over the weekend, he was making a point about coming in right at the right spot in the music. <laughs> and then, uh, and then that's the problem with, this is the problem with, with guest hosting is, um, I don't know the music well enough to know right where that spot the is. Perfect so, spot. Yeah. yeah right. I didn't, I didn't quite, I didn't quite milk the sweet spot, but. <clears throat> Oh, well. Whereas I see oh, yeah. Chris, you just uh, hit play no, uh, and he'll start jumping into it. So. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Actually, he was just yeah. telling me about that. He was like, he was talking about when he was in the RV. He's like, when I, I there are times when no, when I'll uh, when somebody will be playing something and I'm like, oh, show mode, and then he's got to call him. He's like, no, 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 it's not show mode. It's just if he hears Ronald Janky somewhere. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. I, I, I would do it too. Actually, I just I don't ever have my theme music anywhere. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Ben. I meant to tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is actually now in the Ubuntu Mate installer a minimal installation option where it only does like the minimal GUI mm-hmm. and then with a browser and a bunch of utilities. That's all it includes for you. It's awesome. Yes, and I'm actually half tempted to check that box and see what it gives me. <laughs> and hmm. I will say that, um, like I said in the show just a few minutes ago, that this actually scaled my Mac screen right down to the proper setting. And I am really amazed at this. And I'll, and it didn't pick up my Wi-Fi, but it did pick up my uh, Thunderbolt to Ethernet jack hmm. almost instantly. I was really impressed with that. And all I did was plug it in right from the router. Boom. Done. Nice. It worked just fine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the wired stuff tends to work, you know, actually pretty well. Yes, and I am on, and I am unfortunately going to have to install the proprietary Broadcom driver after the install, or <laughs> maybe it'll pick up during the updates. But I don't know. 
but I always download updates while installing Ubuntu because that way I'll have my Wi-Fi and all that other <coughs> stuff working. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually planning to stick around for the Ask Noah show because there are certain things that I need to talk to you about during the show and maybe afterwards. I don't awesome. know, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm planning to stick around for that. And uh, like I said, I wish to God that I could afford a ThinkPad right now, but unfortunately I just can't, you know, and it really sucks. Yeah, I hear you. Hey, guys, also, hey guys can we also, go to, can um, we go to jblive. Dot, or, uh, can we go to jbtitles.com? I don't, do we, uh, do, we pick, do we pick titles from jbtitles or do we pick them from Discord now? I have both up. I have. I, have, uh, I think I have, normally we just do we do both. You know, uh, we'll do a search in Discord to see what people throw okay. there, and then also look at what's on. I, I did. What's on J-Bolt. I did. I did put Discord on my laptop just to do the show today. So. Oh, look at you! Yeah. Right. But no, another thing I meant to talk to you about was the thing that I'm on Sprint right now with my family, and uh, they're such a pain in the neck. So I've been thinking about you know maybe getting a Tim a, a, a what is it a, a Ting SIM card and just throwing it in there and i don't even have five bucks to throw towards that and i'm like oh, yeah. you gotta be shitting me <laughs> so i'm thinking about you know waiting till friday this week and chucking out five bucks and getting one yeah for sure now now ben you're just more try it out. yeah you're more than welcome to call into the ask Noah show but just make sure make sure to keep it family friendly i will and i forgot to do that during uh during um what you call it on uh Lup. Sorry. Oh, Lup doesn't matter. Lup, well, I mean, I suppose it should I suppose it should have probably, we should probably always try to be family friendly, but it doesn't, <clears throat> the thing is, Lup, the only thing you have to worry about is you just have to not offend Chris or the audience to the point that Chris gets upset. That's really all you have to do. My show, you say a bad word, I get a $10,000 fine, so don't do that.